So, good morning, everybody. Let's start again with mobile communications. Last time, I finished with explaining the basic medium access mechanism of wireless LANs. So, basically, the idea was that all the stations have to sense the carrier as good as they can. And if they detect, okay, the medium is idle, three here, or like the station one, they have to wait <coughs> wait for a certain amount of time. So they have to wait for uh, this diffs. This, it's a certain period in the frame spacing. Diffs is the longest period, so they have to wait. And if the medium then is still idle, in this example, station three can access the medium. So then the medium is busy, and the other stations, hopefully, will notice that the medium is busy. They will not if they are, for example, hidden terminals. You remember the problem of hidden exposed terminals. So there we need a different solution, slightly different solution. But if they detect the medium is busy, they cannot send. Then I said, okay, they have to wait. And after the medium is idle again, at this point, all the stations have to wait for a certain time, diffs again, and now they are not allowed to immediately access the medium, otherwise collisions, collisions, collisions. So they actually pick a random number, number out of a window. And they have to wait for a certain number of slots. So for example, the window is from zero to one slots in the beginning. So they pick a random number, either zero or one. Then they wait zero slots or one slots. Well, one slot. Hmm. Okay. So they pick a random number, and there's a certain mechanism built into the uh, wireless LAN system that this window, where they pick the random number out of, increases in size if there are collisions. So actually, the window in this example might be 16. So the stations <coughs> pick a waiting time between 0 and 15, for example random waiting time. If there are many collisions, you simply increase the window, and then the chance for a collision decreases. If there are no collisions, you shrink the window again. That means, on average, you have a lower waiting time. The larger the window, the higher the chance that you pick a longer waiting time. And so this means for a station, it has to wait. If there are almost no stations sending, you shouldn't wait. So here in this example, you see station one, two, and five picks a certain waiting time. Station one, a quite long one, so a so-called back-off time. And then the time, well, continues. You have to wait for one slot, two slots, three slots, whatever. And then, for example, after three slots, station two can access the medium. Then the medium is busy. And the other stations now have to store the so-called residual back-off time. So it's a little bit larger for station one, and there's another one that you are for station five. So they store this residual back-off time. Then what happens after station two has finished sending, again, all stations have to wait for diffs. <coughs> it's distributed in the frame spacing, so they have to wait. So what happens then? 
They are not allowed to access the medium immediately, but station one continues to count down the back of time, the residual back of time. The same is true for station five, so it's the residual back of time here, the same. But there's station four. Station four is now new. Station four also wants to send something. And because this is a random process, in this example, station four randomly picked a back of time, which is exactly the same as the residual back of time five. It's not synchronized, it's not harmonized. It's, they don't know each other. So it may happen that they both have the same back of time, the time elapses, both access the medium after, for example, three slots, four slots, and then we have a collision at the receiver. This might happen. Typically then, at the access point, we have a collision. Okay, so it's just a collision avoidance scheme. So we try to avoid collisions. We cannot detect collisions, so we try to avoid them. So there must be a mechanism to detect the collisions. We will see in the next slide how this works. And then there's again a residual back of time for station one. Why do we save the back of time? Well, to guarantee some fairness. Because statistically, the stations waiting for a longer time, they have a higher and higher and higher chance to access the medium after some time. Because they simply count down the residual back of time. Yeah, then finally station one can access the medium. Four and five had a collision, so they have to pick again a new random number for the frequency. Okay, that's the <coughs> basic medium access mechanism, a little bit simplified, for 802.11 wireless LAN. Simplified because I uh, don't show acknowledgements, etc., on this slide. That will be on the next slide. So that's a very basic scheme. You see, we have fairness. And due to this back-off timer and the shrinking, increasing window, spread the access times of the different participants in the wireless LAN, and hopefully we have almost no collisions. It depends. So how do we see if there's a collision? Well, if we zoom into a data transfer, it looks a little bit different from what you see here. So if you send so-called unicast packets, you wait for the stiffs, then you send your data, but then after a short interframe space, a shorter waiting time compared to diffs, the receiver has to send back an acknowledgement if the receiver got the packet. There's no acknowledgement in Ethernet, for example. We have, in the classical older Ethernet, we have the this collision detection mechanisms in the newer ones, there's nothing. There's no acknowledgement on layer two, no, no acknowledgement on layer three. Layer four, TCP, that's the first time where we have some acknowledgement. Not on two, not on three. But here, because collisions are quite common, we have a, an acknowledgement scheme. And the idea is the receiver immediately after waiting for SIF so for some time, you send back the egg. The egg cannot collide with other data packets because all the other senders have to wait at least for diffs. And SIFs is shorter than diffs. So this is this means that the acknowledgement will come through. So this receiver can send it. And if the sender 
then receives the acknowledgement, the sender knows, okay, everything was fine. If you do not receive an acknowledgement, you know there was a collision. So there's no collision detection, but an acknowledgement scheme. So that's the, the idea. So in, if we have a transmission error, you do an automatic retransmission of a packet up to a certain number of times, and then you signal the higher layer, no connectivity. So that's uh, basically the scheme. That acknowledgement packets are one of the packets you can send after a waiting time of SIFs, which is shorter than diffs. <coughs> and that's basically the idea how you can uh, how you can actually notice if there was a collision. So now we see, and this is only for unicast packets, not for broadcasting. So there's no acknowledgement for broadcasts. Because what does it mean? Broadcast to how many participants? Then you send back the acknowledgements. All the acknowledgements uh, will cause collisions, etc. So no collisions for broadcast. So this is for unicast only, not for multicast, not for broadcast. So that's the normal case when you use wireless LANs. You send data, you'll get back an acknowledgement. What happens if we have hidden terminals, exposed terminals? So that means you have a classical Scenario like this, where you have, for example, the access point somewhere on the wall, and you have a laptop here, and then maybe there's a, a wall where you attach the access point. You have a laptop there, <coughs> and then you actually you access uh, this access point, you communicate, and the same here. So the radio waves of this uh, laptop, they penetrate the wall and go maybe like this, and also the same is true for the other laptop, but they do not see each other. So this means these are hidden terminals. So um, when they perform the carrier sensing, carrier sensing actually fails because uh, they cannot see each other. That was exactly our hidden terminal problem. So wireless LAN implements the classical RTS-CTS scheme I introduced some chapters ago. So if you want to send a unicast packet and the system detects a lot of interference, noise, whatever, the system has the option of using RTS-CTS. How does it work? So actually the sender again has to wait for diffs. Then it sends a request to send. Request to send contains the address of the sender and the receiver and the duration. The duration of the want to use the medium. This is stored in a so-called network allocation vector. The NAV tells all the stations, all the stations store this, oh, someone wants to use the medium. And during this time of the network allocation vector, it's not allowed for other stations to send data. So they are blocked. So all the stations receiving the RTS will actually be blocked. After a short in the frame space, will return a CTS, a clear to send, if it's uh, ready to receive something. It sends a clear to send. And then all the stations will again store or update the network allocation vector. So if you already have a network allocation vector set by the RTS, you will update it. 
and, but it might be the case that there are stations that never received the RTS. Then they will simply store, okay, there is some sender that wants to send to a receiver, and okay, it's for this duration. Then we know who wants to send for what time something to what receiver, and we can act upon this knowledge. And this, this uh, actually solves, as I showed you some chapters ago, the hidden and exposed terminal problem. Then after, again, short interframe space, you can send your data. After six, you can send the acknowledgement. <coughs> so the only way to have a collision here, if the stations don't move, etc., is a collision with the RTS. So the RTS can collide with other data packets. Uh, for the RTS, you have exactly the same uh, uh, contention, etc. thing. But you will not have hopefully a collision with the data packets. And the idea is for the RTS, it's a very short packet, and the uh, CTS, uh, CTS is also a short packet, and then you have a long data packet. So if you have a collisions, if you have a collision, you have only a collision with a short packet. So that doesn't hurt that much. The problem is uh, that this wastes some time if you have no hidden terminal. If you have not a problem with interference of hidden terminals. So you waste some time for the RTS-CTS scheme. So there are some papers showing that it's not a good idea to use RTS-CTS, for example, if you have voice transmission. Uh, and well, so some devices use it, some devices don't. For some devices, you can set it if you want to use RTS-CTS. So it really depends on what you want to do. Okay, so. And this is where uh, also the acronym Distributed Foundation Wireless Medium Access Control was coined, uh, which is, comes together with the scheme of RTS and CTS. Okay, so but this is optional. It's optional, but it's used. There's also the polling scheme, which is optional, but not used. So I will not go into the details there. There's a mechanism for fragmentation in wireless LAN. So if you want to send larger packets, uh, you can fragment the packets. You have RTS, CTS, and then you send fragments, and you will get an immediate acknowledgement. You will send the next fragment, acknowledgement, etc., etc., and you allocate the medium for all the time, and then the other stations may send something. So that's also possible to send fragments and to get immediate acknowledgement of fragments if you want to send uh, larger packets. Okay, but typically the most common case is exactly this one. You wait, you send your packet, and after SIFs you get the acknowledgement. There is, just in the slides, uh, uh, this point coordination function, optional but not used. So. Uh, in the early days of standardization, <coughs> the engineers thought we want to have some controlled access scheme, for example, for voice transmission, never used. So that's just to make the slides complete. Okay, frame format. The classical frame format, well, is as follows. You have different types of frames, control management and data frames. Okay, data frames, that's typically where you send your data. You have sequence numbers. It's a little bit more complicated because you have now up to four addresses and you have some checksumming, et cetera, et cetera. 
So frame control field, again, you don't have to remember all these things. But so you see some histor historical things there, like uh, wire, this, this uh, WEP, wired equivalent privacy, a weak protection scheme, uh, some power management, uh, a bit that tells you if there are more fragments or fragmentation. And then two bits that will tell you, I will show you a table on the next slide, will tell you where the, pack, uh, the packet actually is. Is it a packet from, for example, a laptop to an access point? Is it a packet that goes from one access point to another one? Is it a packet that goes from an access point to a laptop? Or is it a packet that goes in an ad hoc mode between two laptops, for example? And this is why we need more addresses. I will come back to this later. We have a CRC data sequence control, and then we have this uh, duration field. <coughs> so there's a field depending uh, if these are packets that have a duration at all that will, tell, uh, that will actually set this network allocation vector. So why do we have four addresses? So if you remember Ethernet, there's a source address and there's a destination address. Yes. Thing is as follows. So if you have, oops, if you have, for example, uh, access point here, access point there, and you have some whatever distribution system in between, for example, uh, switch or whatever. So that's not standardized, um, the wireless LAN. And you have a laptop one here, and you have a laptop two here. And now, actually, the wireless LAN system is a switched system, transparent, layer two. So it should be possible to send a packet from laptop one to laptop two. Then you have a MAC source address here, and you have a MAC destination address here. Like we have it with switches. So a uh, quite common error, for example, in the exams is when we ask for the MAC addresses, that many students uh, say, okay, the, for example, the host as the source MAC address and the destination MAC address is the MAC address of the switch. No, switches are transparent. This is why they're called transparent switches. You don't see MAC addresses of switches. And the same is true here. So if you want to send a packet from one uh, terminal to another one, the source address is the source address in this example from laptop one. Destination address is the address of laptop two. So that's fine in wired networks. That's all you have in Ethernet. Then you have a packet uh, with a source address and with a, a destination address and then some data and some other fields, but we don't care for the other fields. And that's it. Here, we have a problem. We have a wireless link between the laptop and the access point and the other access point and this laptop. What does it mean? I showed you when I told you, okay, this is how we transmit unicast packets, that we get immediate acknowledgements because we have a wireless medium, more errors. Who will give you the immediate acknowledgement? It's the access point. So this is why we have, in addition to this logical MAC addresses, so source address, laptop one, <coughs> 
destination address laptop 2. We also need MAC addresses for the real transmission. So also the access point has a MAC address, the MAC address of access point 1, and there's a MAC address of access point 2. So now, if you send a packet from laptop 1 to the first access point, the packet will actually contain the source address of the laptop 1, which is the logical source address, but also the physical source address of this packet on layer 2, so the real sender, plus we need the logical receiver destination address of laptop 2, plus we need the MAC address of the access point 1. Why? Because access point 1 will be the access point sending the acknowledgement. And then the laptop has to know, okay, who was the sender of the acknowledgement, so we need a third MAC address. And the same is true when we send uh, the packet from access point 2 to laptop 2 with the logical source address, the logical destination address, which is the same as the physical destination address, and we have the MAC address of access point 2, so we need three addresses. And here in the middle, when we transmit one access point to another, we need the logical MAC source MAC address, the logical destination address, plus the physical MAC address, uh, so physical MAC address, hmm, it's not physical layer, so it's layer two, uh, and the MAC address of the other access points. So there might be the case that we need four MAC addresses. And the reason is this immediate acknowledgement we perform only on this wireless link between the access point and the laptop. So wireless LAN uh, actually defines up to four addresses. So if you send over the air, you need three addresses and because of this acknowledgement scheme. So it's different from what you have in fixed networks with the transparent switches. Here you need the different addresses. And this is actually what the bits in the packet on layer two tell you. They tell you the basic, well, the, the use of the different addresses. So uh, <coughs> the bits in this packet, they will be set as follows. You will find everything in the recordings. So uh, where do we have this? So the bits are set as follows. So depending on if you send something to the uh, distribution system, from the distribution system, within the uh, distribution system, or if you have an ad hoc network, you have different, well, different meanings of these address fields. So the most extreme uh, case is what I explained. If you are within this distribution system, you have the logical destination address, that was the laptop, the logical source address, and you have the receiver and transmitter address of the uh, access points. In all the other cases, we need the logical destination address, the logical source address, um, like here, for example, in the ad hoc network, plus the third address in ad hoc 
is the service set identifier, the SSID, that's the third address, because for all the packets, you have to know to which network they belong. Wireless LANs can operate on different channels, but you can also operate several wireless LANs on the same channel. So then, somehow you have to distinguish between the different packets of the different networks, and they're distinguished by the service set identifier. So if we have the classical K infrastructure network, and we send something from a laptop, for example, to an access point, we're here in uh, line three. So um, we need a physical receiver address, which is the ID of the network. This is actually then something like the MAC address of the access point. So the access point might have an own MAC address and a web server and whatever. But here, this is the physical receiver. We have a physical sender, which is also the logical source address. And we have a logical receiver, which is then the DA, the destination address in our uh, picture, laptop two. And the other way around, if something is sent from the access point, we have the physical receiver would be the destination address, the same as the logical address, which is laptop two in our uh, figure. We have the physical sender, it's the service set identifier, the SSID, which is the ID of the access point. And uh, then we have, uh, so and we have the source address, which is a logical source address. And we always need, for the acknowledgement schemes, we need the first two addresses. So um, this is for the acknowledgement, so these are the real receivers and the real senders we need for this acknowledgement. So that's the basic idea. There you see, okay, we need logical layer two addresses and we need the layer two addresses for the acknowledgement and we code the service set identifier in an address field. So it's also an address, but then used as a service set identifier, which is then uh, actually the identifier for the access point, for example. The access points can have many of these identifiers. You can have many logical wireless LANs in the same space, in the same frequency. Okay, so MAC uh, addressing is a little bit more complicated in wireless LANs. Wireless LANs are today much, much faster than they have been many years ago, but layer two and all the basic mechanisms basically stay the same. You will find some more frame formats, so not only data frames, control frames, but also the uh, these short acknowledgements, RTS, CTS, etc. frames on the slides, but it's not that important. Okay, so now we know at least have some overview of the packets. So how do we actually enter a wireless LAN? So, well, somehow we have to synchronize, we have to find a wireless LAN, we have to stay in the wireless LAN. Somehow we have to manage the power. Maybe we want to set our wireless LAN device to sleep to save power. So there are functions for periodic sleeping of the devices so, they do not, so that they do not waste energy. But how do you receive data when you're asleep? You cannot. So someone has to store data for you and then transmit the data to you if you're awake. 
So integration into a LAN, roaming, scanning, so the active search for network, these are all functions for uh, the Mac management. So you have to manage the wireless LAN adapter to perform all these functions and roaming and scanning are typical functions. So if you're new in the region, so your adapter has to scan all the known channels for active networks. This takes some time. So there's also management information base. You know all these, uh, the, these functions from telematics. So one of the function, functions is synchronization. <coughs> we need synchronization for the sleeping cycles, these uh, sleep-awake cycles I will explain later. Plus, we need synchronizations to receive the service set identifiers, the SSIDs. And if you switch on whatever device, you will notice uh, some of the networks you see immediately. And for some of the networks, it takes some time. And you will see more and more and more wireless LANs. This depends on the beacon intervals and if you, for example, miss a beacon. So what do we transmit? So the access point in an infrastructure network transmits beacons periodically. So there's a beacon typically every 20 milliseconds or up to every second. The beacon contains a timestamp. So we try to synchronize all the wireless LAN devices. So there's a certain beacon frame. Then you have a timestamp and you need this for this uh, periodic sleep functions, for example, but also to transmit the SSID, etc. However, the point is beacon frames, well, they also have to compete for the medium. They cannot, so the access point cannot simply say, okay, I sent a beacon frame, that's it, because this would cause collisions, has no higher rights or whatever to send uh, data. So as you see in the example, the first beacon is fine, comes exactly at the black line. Then the medium is busy, the medium again is busy, whatever. The second beacon cannot be sent exactly after one second, so it will be delayed. However, that's not a big issue because you actually adapt the value of the timestamp. So if you send the second beacon frame, it will contain the correct timestamp. So you adapt it. A third beacon is with a right in time and the fourth one is again delayed for some time. So now we have beacons, beacons with the SSIDs, etc. So what can we do with the beacons? So actually, uh, it's also in the slides how you do this uh, in ad hoc networks. It's a little bit more complicated and there are also papers showing uh, that, well, ad hoc networks work but you cannot use all the functions you will find in the standards in ad hoc networks like the periodic sleep functions, etc. But so that's uh, that what happens in ad hoc networks. The different actually is that different stations, here station one, in this case station two, then again station two, then again station one may send the beacon because you don't have a centralized access point. So all stations may send the beacon and then you have a random delay and then again perform this contention for the medium, etc. And then sometimes station two will win, sometimes station one, and then you synchronize more or less the devices. So, yeah?
uh, well, you, you can actually turn off the visibility of the, uh, the SSID, that you don't see the SSID to hide, more or less to hide uh, the network, which does not really work uh, because, um, I have to look up the details, the point was that actually the stations participating in the network will then resend this SSID. So if you look up this hiding of the networks, etc., most literature uh, will tell you that switching off the visibility of the SSID and sending these announcement of the SSIDs does not help. I do not know, I have to look up uh, what happens with the synchronization because you need the synchronization uh, for the uh, sleeping patterns. Without synchronization, you cannot uh, start the sleeping pattern. Uh, the, you can hide the SSID. Well, actually, you will simply not send the SSID in the beacon, uh, but the stations will send it. So there was an article uh, telling that it does not help to switch it off to, so that actually to hide uh, your network. So you won't see it, but if you scan the channel, uh, you will notice that actually the station will send the SSID, well, um, in the packets. Let's lay this in the packets, you will see them, because address three, for example, is this SSID, or address, uh, it depends on if you send to or from uh, the access point, you need the SSID to sort out the packets to the right uh, network. So the only protection is uh, if you really encrypt it with WPA, uh, and, but not by hiding the SSID. So hiding the SSID only stops uh, transmitted, uh, transmitting the SSID periodically. But if you're listening to the traffic, you will receive the SSID anyway. But synchronization you need for definitely for the uh, sleeping, uh, for, for controlling the sleep patterns of the devices if you switch on this, uh, sometimes it's called power safe mode. Things, you will run into some problems if you do, for example, voice transmission and if you put your device to sleep. So there are certain, uh, several papers telling that uh, these power safe functions do not always work the way they should. They work if you have only from time to time to send something but not if you have uh, voice over IP or some uh, whatever sessions. But the beacons uh, you definitely need for the synchronization. Oops. Oh, that's funny. So uh, exactly for this power management that you switch off the transceiver if you don't need it. Typically, the devices are always on receive mode. And if you have to send something, you switch the transceiver into a transmit mode. And then afterwards you go into receive mode again. This takes some time. This is why we cannot immediately receive, for example, an acknowledgement after sending a packet. So you need some time for the hardware to switch from transmit into receive. Plus, you can actually switch the transceiver completely off, so you can put the device to sleep. But this is where you need synchronization. So you need some synchronization to the access point in this example. And the access point then will tell you, when you wake up, will tell you if there's traffic waiting for you. It's called a traffic indication map. So 
the access point will actually broadcast a list of receivers where the access point stores some data for. And so that's called the traffic indication map. And then there's another one for broadcast and multicast. But the important one for the normal unicast is this TIM. It's also, there's also a way of doing this in ad hoc uh, mode, but, but papers indicating it doesn't really work. Uh, so scalability is a big issue, etc. So power saving in ad hoc mode. Hmm. There's, and this was the classical scheme, the classical scheme for uh, the 802.11 power saving. This has been replaced by the APSD, the Automatic Power Safe Delivery Functions. So if you want to look it up, this is the keyword. And that's a newer method in 11E, so a new substandard, replacing these schemes. Because there were some problems here. And uh, a more powerful, a better scheme, this Automatic Power Safe Delivery. And 11E, I will come back to this later, um, also deals with quality of service. Up to now, this is basically a best effort scheme. Historically, best effort, that's it. Which is fine for classical IP packets, but not if you have more and more of this uh, voice, voice over wireless LAN, voice over IP over wireless LAN. Okay, I'll come back to these uh, substandards later on. So the basic idea, and this is why you need this, uh, this synchronization was that you wake up stations. And that's a common scheme I explained here because we use this in many other sensor networks and whatever, a basic scheme that you have these periodic patterns where stations wake up. So you wake up periodically and this is why you need the synchronization. So we also do this for, for certain sensor networks. So you wake them up, you have time synced nodes and then you stay away for a certain time. And if you receive something during this time that concerns you, you stay awake and receive the whole data. You see this, this is in step three. You receive something that is for you. How do you know? The traffic indication map will tell you. The indication map actually tells you we have some data for you and you have to stay awake for a longer time. If the traffic indication map tells you, well, there's nothing for you, you can fall asleep again. That's the basic idea. And as you see, the team will, uh, it will, can be shifted due to a busy medium. These are all the issues we also handle in our sensor networks, in many other networks. As soon as we want to have time-synced functions, you run into many issues. And uh, there are many, many research papers published that actually exactly handle uh, or they deal with these issues of time synchronization and still saving a lot of power because if you have a tight time sync, uh, you will lose a lot of energy just by syncing, etc., etc., etc. So this is complicated in real networks, and this scheme has also been replaced in the wireless LANs. So that's the classical scheme, and there was also a classical scheme for the ad hoc networks. So I will come back to the substandards later. So we're still with the classical classical 802.11. So uh, we have since the mid-90s. Roaming, 
was all, uh, always needed if you have several access points. So you scan the environment and you wait for, uh, for a beacon signal or you can send probes into the medium. So if you already know, uh, I know this and that SSID, you can check if someone reacts upon this SSID. So if the de your devices at home know this is the SSID of my network, they will simply send probes into the air to check if the network is there and wait for an answer. So you send the request to one or several access points that you want to reassociate with the wireless LAN. And if the network tells you yes, okay, so you succeed, the access point answers, the station can participate. Or if the access uh, does not answer, or if it's a failure, the access point rejects you, you have to continue to scan. So that's the idea. And then the standard does not explicitly specify how the distribution system handles the fact that a new station joined the network. It just says, okay, uh, so the access point signals the new station to distribution system, and there might be some database, so location information, etc., and the distribution system can inform the old access point that the old access point knows that uh, maybe it has some resources like the MAC address stored <coughs> in the table, etc. But the standard was not really clear, the original standard, how you can perform the roaming. And we here, for example, have a different system. So we have stupid antennas, and it's all in a kind of a concentration center where, where all this, uh, that you concentrate all the wires from all the different uh, access points, and you handle all the roaming, handover, etc. there. So roaming was still an open issue. So we have new substandards, fast roaming for vehicle to roadside networks, and other ways of performing these roaming issues. So uh, we also have proprietary solutions. So you cannot uh, expect a seamless roaming between devices of different vendors. So it doesn't matter at home, uh, this roaming. Um, and here we have from one vendor the system for the whole campus, and then this vendor has uh, its own functions for roaming, for scanning the network, for doing all these nice things. Okay, so uh, basic standard. So mid-90s, the first thing that was enhanced, sure, was the data rate. The original standard, two megabit per second. So the first thing, so we don't have to go into the details, was the 11B standard going up to 11 megabit per second. User data rates about six megabit per second, and the maximum data rate you will get up to maybe 10 meters indoor. So again, 2.4 gigahertz. And everything else is exactly the same compared to the original standard. So that was the first step, 11B, came out before 11A towards higher data rates. And now we look in uh, the classical frame formats because 11B is still used. The classical frame formats of uh, 11B, again, you don't have to remember all the bits and whatever. I just want to show you something that basically, there are different formats, basically the standard says 
that first you have to synchronize, and then you have some control fields, the PLC, P header, etc. The important thing is it starts with a low data rate of one megabit per second. There's another standard starting two megabit per second. First one, then two. So the interesting thing is that no matter how fast your wireless LAN may be, maybe you have a 100 megabit or whatever, uh, 11N or whatever network, as soon as there is a 11B device in the network, or also without the, uh, <coughs> the older devices, you have the problem that the control fields of the packets are typically always sent with a lower data rate. And then the system switches to higher data rates. In the old 11B standard, to 5.5, 11 megabit per second. What does it mean? If you calculate the overall throughput of a wireless LAN, you cannot simply say, oh, I have a 11 megabit per second data rate. 11 megabit is only true for the payload. It's not true for the control header, synchronization, signal, whatever control fields you have in here. They have two or one per second. And it's not true for the waiting time, for diffs, sifs, and whatever. So you have to subtract from this 11 megabit per second the waiting time and the slower headers. And this is a problem we also have today with the very fast wireless LANs. Control data is always sent with lower data rates. And looks a little bit different, but the idea is exactly the same, and you still have the problem of diffs and sifs, so the waiting time. So this is why with a wireless LAN, you will never have these high data rates that are announced with 100 megabit or 150 or whatever megabit per second. This is only true exactly for the payload if there's almost no interference, etc. Okay, so that's all I wanted to say about these frame formats. Then we send on some frequencies, and this is how it looks like in Europe and the US. <coughs> in Europe, we have 13 channels. And we can use, actually, in Europe and US, only three non-overlapping channels. The problem is that the wireless LAN sure offers 13, or some countries 14, some countries 11 channels, but they're overlapping. So, yes, um, theoretically, you can use channel 1, channel 2, and channel 3, and whatever. But uh, channel 2 looks like this, and channel 3 channel 4, and uh, whatever, channel 5, etc. So they are all overlapping. So you have to decide. Uh, typically, you use 1, 6, 11, because some devices cannot uh, use channel 12 and 13. Uh, they are from the US, for example. Uh, you use 1, 6, 11, and that's it. And they are pretty crowded. So yes, you can use 11, but then you cause collisions. So the point is today, if you check for wireless LANs here, uh, you see that typically these are used, also some others, plus on each of the channels are several wireless LANs. You distinguish the packets by the SSID, but you will cause collisions. That's it. So as you see, it's not the same as having different wires. So these are the classical uh, channel selections. And at home, you can check okay, for all the other channels, the neighbors use, and then you may pick one that is not that occupied, or your device does it 
uh, by itself. So many of the DSL routers together with wireless LAN, et cetera, they can pick automatically a frequency that is not uh, that much used. But if you live in a densely populated uh, region, I mean, actually, you have all the channels used all the time. Okay, so <coughs> that was the first step towards higher data rates, 11B. Then there was also 11A. What is the main difference? Well, even higher data rates, 54 megabit per second, but operating also on different frequency bands, so around 5 point something gigahertz. These are not license-free, but license-exempt frequency bands, and everything else stays exactly the same. The frustrating part here is that data rates drop pretty fast the further away you are from the access point. So 54 megabit, for example, up to 5 meters, etc. But then if you have 54, that means user throughput is about 32 megabit per second. So it drops pretty fast. So you can use this 54 only if you actually basically see your system. <coughs> How does the frame format look like? You see here, again, you have a preamble, you have a signaling header, and you see at a lower data rate, at 6 megabit per second, lower data rate, and then you can go up to 55, for example, for the data part. The data part contains payload, service fare, uh, fees, etc. But you see again, here, uh, actually, you have a lower data rate, and you tell uh, the receiver the data rate in the rate field. Okay. The advantage there is, so the disadvantage is the higher frequency, so you have a problem penetrating walls, etc. The big advantage is you have many, many more operating channels available. So this is the example in Europe. <laughs> you have many more channels, many more uh, non-overlapping channels. So 36 and 40 non-overlapping, uh, so many non-overlapping channels, as you see here. So it's much simpler to find an empty channel compared to the versions at 2.4 plus. At 2.4, you have the microwave ovens, plus you have Bluetooth and Zigbee and many other systems. So it's uh, something we also use, and we also use, for example, for our uh, telephone system. So for our wireless LAN telephones that use voice or IP, we go to 5 uh, gigahertz. And the similar you have for the uh, US looks a little bit different, less channels there. Okay. <coughs> the system uh, works a little bit different if you're in how it really works, how it actually really transmit data. It uses this OFDM uh, technology where it splits data onto several subcarriers, 48, 48 data. Uh, carriers for pilot carriers, and then you actually split your data streams on all these different carriers and to make the system more robust. So the keyword here is OFDM. So this also took a little bit longer to finalize the standard. It's a little bit more complicated, 5 gigahertz, etc. 
So these are the classical old enhancements of the wireless LAN technology. Classical and old because they are now around for several years. So that was mid-90s, late-90s, and then around 2000-2001, uh, wireless LANs really took off. And suddenly, we, ha we had more and more standards. Just a quick overview. So some updates and whatever. Interesting is the 11E came out much later than 11G, for example. 11G is just the update at 2.4 gigahertz for higher data rates, 54 megabit per second. So this is why today, basically all the devices are A, B, G devices, and the newer ones are A, B, G, N devices. But actually, you don't have to mention the A, B, G, etc. anymore, because they are now all in the new ADAT standard. So uh, 11G actually is uh, the success, uh, successor, very successful successor of the 11B uh, standard, 2.4 gigahertz and higher data rates. So 11E, 11E is one of the newer standards now supporting quality of service. So you enhance the Mac scheme. So uh, the classic, classical Mac supports best effort. And now we can define much more uh, data rates and bursts and sending periods, etc., etc. We have new energy saving mechanisms and uh, we have high priority traffic, etc. So, not all devices already support this, and it's always a question where do you need it for telephone, for example, yes, or for if you have video transmission, then you need uh, higher priority traffic support for this. So there are some enhancements. In Germany, typically in Europe, the 11A standard always comes together with 11H. What is the reason? What does 11H mean? It's spectrum management. The point is uh, that the 5 gigahertz band, in Europe, it's not a license-free band. It's a license-exempt band. That means that the... Bundesnetzagentur, for example, could revoke the license for operating all these devices on 5 gigahertz if there's too much interference, especially for flight radar. To avoid this and to manage the spectrum here much better with mechanisms that do two things. One is the so-called dynamic channel selection. So automatically, the devices pick the best channel. In 11... B at 2.4 hertz, B and G, you can say, okay, I pick channel 6 or I pick this or that channel. In 11A, together with the standard H, the system automatically selects the channel to avoid interference. That's a dynamic channel selection. And we have TPC, that's transmit power control. It's an automatic power control scheme that sets the power to a level that is enough for transmission, but not always 100 milliwatts, for example. So a little bit more intelligent system to avoid interference. And this 11H is mandatory in Europe for the use of 11A. Okay, we have a new security mechanism. So the WEP, we don't talk about this anymore because it's insecure. So 
you should never use this. We have now uh, much better standards. We have AES for encryption, much better encryption standards, and so on. So you see more things like complete uh, new standards, uh, you see A, B, D, whatever is now in the standard. We have higher data rates, 11N. There was a long battle going on around 11N because companies already had 11N devices for many years and they wanted to push their solution for 11N. Now finally we have an 11N uh, standard uh, with MIMO 10SO, at least 100 megabit per second at the service access point of layer two. So still we have this overhead due to the protocol headers. We still have the problems of the waiting time. We still have the problems of lower data rates for uh, the control part, etc. Faster handover and the story continues. So mesh networking is quite interesting for us here because we do a lot of uh, research in mesh and ad hoc networks. So 11S is basically the idea of a self-configuring uh, system supporting point-to-point -point broadcast communication across several hops. I told you in the beginning, the original .11 standard includes an ad hoc mode, but all devices have to be within the transmission range, within the same transmission range. And now we support multi-hop communication. And more and more uh, standards, uh, you see a standard covering security of network control. So the classical security functions of the wireless LAN, they deal only with the security of the user data, but not security of all the control functions of the network. So W, 11W deals with this. And then we have high throughput, uh, substandards, etc. The interesting part, surely, is not all the standards will end in products. So we have many work groups, and I showed you last time a brief overview of all the, the work groups, and some of them are inactive. Uh, some have a standard as a result, and the standard is integrated in the big .11 standard, and some just came up with some papers, and that's it. So if you want to look it up, here, uh, standards, IEEE.org, uh, IEEE has all the standards and all the information there. You will not get the new standards because IEEE uh, makes some money out of actually selling the new standards. Okay, so uh, that is one of the biggest success stories when it comes to local area networks for, let's say, a uh, distance of up to 10, 15, 20 meters to the access point. That's one apartment. Uh, but already in apartments, you need wireless LAN repeaters. Um, they can operate in different versions, uh, but actually they repeat the signal. Uh, so for good coverage of an apartment, typically you need already two access points, depending on the walls. So the old Berlin houses, uh, you have a problem with penetrating thick walls. Okay, just in this building, we have something like 20, 24 access points for the normal use, in addition to our test beds, etc. Okay, local area networks. But then we all know that we also have more personal area networks, networks that come closer to you, that are just concern some devices you have. Uh, you need some setup, 
you don't have an access point, there's no device controlling uh, actually the access like an access point with a ethernet cable to some switch and whatever. So a network that just connects some devices which is very low power. Today maybe you would use wireless LAN right away also for this purpose. But some years ago, wireless LAN was still a technology consuming more power, not offering uh, the services you need, for example, for voice transmission. So in this, uh, the starting point of a wireless personal air network, well known, which is Bluetooth. So the basic idea was actually how can you connect different devices that belong to you, like your mobile phone, a headset, a keyboard, a mouse, uh, whatever, a printer, a camera. Very simple, and it was thought as a replacement of infrared. So IRA was an infrared data association. So in former times, many years ago, all the mobile phones had an infrared interface, and it was very simple to exchange data, just uh, place uh, the devices opposite to each other and then push a button and you could, for example, transfer a business card. Try this today with Bluetooth. Uh, typically, it's a failure because you uh, first set the pins and transfer and whatever. So you, again, you exchange paper business cards. You see in all the conferences, people exchange paper business cards and they do not exchange electronic business cards, although we had the solution. Okay, <clears throat> that's just a remark. So, infrared has a problem. There must be a line of sight between the devices, which is a protection against eavesdropping. Not that bad. But if you have one of the devices in your, whatever, somewhere pocket, and you have uh, just all in the ear, and you have a mobile phone, or you have a keyboard, and somewhere else a computer, you need a radio connection, not infrared. It should be cheap. The idea in the very beginning was already maximum five euros per device. Today it's even cheaper. Short range, low power, license free. So again, 2.4 something ISM band. Plus voice, support of voice transmission. So guaranteed data rates. Not high data rates, but guaranteed data rates. Um, so actually, it was a replacement for a cable. And a cable guarantees your data rate. So a cable between a headset and <coughs> your mobile phone guarantees a certain data rate. Well, it's an analog audio signal, uh, but it's a guaranteed connection. Place this for the, all these hands-free operation, etc. And in the beginning, approximately one megabit per second. So in one of the first modules from Ericsson, you see on the lower left-hand side. Okay, so how does it start? Well, it was mid-90s, so <coughs> 16, 17 years ago. There was the MC-Link project <coughs> and at uh, Ericsson. And actually, at that time, the name was MC-Link, and then uh, one of these guys went to, I think it was Seattle, and talking to a friend, that this friend was a Viking fan, etc. And uh, he explained to his friend what he's wo working on, etc. And after some beer, I guess, they came up with the uh, name Bluetooth, according to Harald Brotant, uh, king of Denmark in the 10th century. So interesting story. And in former time, the logo of Bluetooth 
was also, as you see in the upper right-hand side, you won't find this on, on the internet anymore, but the internet does not forget anything, so you will you have to search and then you will find this logo and it should remind you of the sails of the Viking boats sailing out into the sea, whatever. <coughs> Today, it looks more like this. It's a kind of a letter B that should look like a rune letter. So the Bluetooth Special Interest Group was founded in 98, Bluetooth.org. They even erected a rune stone at Ericsson and first consumer product was for the mass market was actually 2001 and they hit 2005, some million chips per week. So it's really widespread. They had five original founding members and today, well, many, many, many members, many products. Uh, just for here, the runestone, and there are some people that believe that this is original runestone. Yes, sure. Uh, Middle Ages with laptop and mobile phone. Uh, and so they, had this, they have this runestone, if you're ever in Lund at Ericsson, and you can read that Ericsson Mobile Communication erected this stone in memory of Harald Bluetooth, uh, who gave his name to this new technology for wireless mobile communication. So that's all it says in Swedish. Well, not, uh, well, <laughs> in this nice rune, whatever letters around here. So you write the rune letters always in these, not always, but in these snakes, etc. There's also, for those of who are historically interested, the real rune stone, but it's in Denmark. I'm yelling for this hard and uh, so looked a little bit uh, <coughs> different and definitely it's not uh, the king, uh, Harald Blotant at that time could be dangerous, uh, so, okay. Uh, so, etc., uh, etc. Et so, Blotant, by the way, has nothing to do with a Bluetooth or whatever. It's just a direct translation in the modern Swedish language where Blo is blue and Tant is uh, tooth. So, this is why Bluetooth, but at that time, Blo simply means dark could be of dark complexion, could be of dark uh, whatever. Uh, so it's not necessary uh, dark, uh, dark teeth, dark tooth, whatever. Okay, so uh, that's history. Okay, back to the technology. So characteristics, again, 2.4 gigahertz. Hmm. 2.4 gigahertz, uh, same frequency. Now what happens with wireless LANs? Hmm, I will come back to this later. So Bluetooth uses 79 channels. Originally 79 channels, uh, some countries was less, and one megahertz carrier spacing. So you start with 2,402 megahertz, you end up at 2,480 megahertz. Uh, you have a frequency shift keying, modulation scheme, certain transmit powers, but now, what does Bluetooth do? Bluetooth uses frequency hopping spectrum and time division duplex. Time division duplex, simple. That means uplink and downlink are separated in time. You don't have two different frequencies for uplink and downlink. By the way, it's the same for wireless LAN, uplink, downlink, same frequency. Frequency hopping spectrum, you do frequency hopping with 1,000 600 hops per second. This is slow hopping. Why? Because we transmit several bits, a whole packet, on one frequency, then we jump to another frequency, as I will show you. So 1,600 times per second, all the Bluetooth devices jump. 
Why? Well, actually, they try, that's the first thing, they try to avoid narrowband interference. So they jump, then maybe one frequency, you have interference, but then, okay, you jump into it, but then the other frequencies are fine. What else? If there's a wireless LAN, well, you jump around this wireless LAN, there are even mechanisms where you can avoid the wireless LAN channel at all, so you jump in all the other channels, but if you have all channels occupied, as we have here, well, so you jump through wireless LANs, and then hopefully, statistically, there will be some collisions, but the majority of the packets will go through. So your avoidance of interference. There's another reason. You hop in a pseudo-random fashion, and as well I will show you, you have a certain master in Bluetooth that determines them. This is used to separate different Bluetooth networks because all the devices in the different networks, they jump with different patterns, as I will show you. So you can separate networks. So you avoid interference and you separate networks. And so this is sometimes also called a code division multiplexer scheme because it's a certain code, pseudo-random uh, number. But it's not for, uh, let's say, real separation in a military sense or whatever. It's basically to separate networks, basically to avoid interference. I will come back to this later. So we have two basic, well, links, services offered by lower layers. One is synchronous connection oriented. So we have a synchronous connection oriented link offering 64 kilobit per second duplex. That's ISDN speed. And that was the idea to have a wireless link that offers, that offers the same data rate as ISDN, which is nice. Then you can directly forward over the wireless link a voice conversation, for example. It's point-to-point, -point, it's circuit switched, so classical, classical circuit switched. And you use correction because you cannot tolerate high delays. This is why you have FEC, and then you try to fix errors with the help of FEC. So that's classical voice. And then you have an asynchronous connection-less data link. Well, data link, asynchronous, with a fast acknowledge, also point-to-multipoint, higher data rates, symmetric, asymmetric, uh, as I will show you. But that's quite good for download, 723.2 downlink, and 57.6 uplink. That's a classical thing for uh, all your, whatever, a GPRS connection where you download something, then over Bluetooth to some whatever device, packet switched. So voice and data, classic voice, classic data. If you do voice over IP over Bluetooth, then you're with a data link, not with a voice link, because IP packets go over this asynchronous connectionless link. So how does it work before we come back to all the services? So how does Bluetooth actually work? Well, the base of Bluetooth is a so-called PicoNet. A PicoNet has always exactly one master. If there's no master, the, the PicoNet is basically 
either does not exist or it's in some kind of frozen state, you need a master. And you can never have more than one master. The master can be your laptop, your mobile phone, the printer, the camera, whatever. Whatever Bluetooth device is able to be a master. There are simplified Bluetooth devices that can only be slaves. But the normal Bluetooth devices can be master or slave. So if there's one master, all the other devices can only be slaves. And Bluetooth can handle only up to seven simultaneous slaves. That means up to eight devices can be active at the same time. Never more than eight. Well, the reason is quite simple. As I will show you, uh, we have only three bit for addresses. So, uh, okay, so you have three bit, you can address your seven slaves, and then there's one broadcast address and seven addresses for the slaves. So if you have three bits, that's all you can do on slaves. Why don't you need eight addresses? I will explain when we come to the access scheme. So one unit acts as a master, and all the others act as a slave. And if you're a master, you determine the piconet. Why? The master determines the hopping pattern, and all the slaves have to synchronize. So the master determines actually how you jump through these 79 channels, this pseudo-random pattern. It's determined by the master, more precisely, by the MAC address of the master and the timer. And the MAC address is unique, and this is why the hopping pattern is unique. And the slaves have to synchronize on this hopping pattern and have to follow. And each piconet has a unique hop. If you have physically overlapping piconets, so that means your laptop with your device and this laptop with this devices, etc., they all overlap, they are all in the same transmission range, but they have different hopping patterns. So they might jump into each other, but that actually doesn't matter because this is only for a very short period in time. So there might be some interference, but only for a very short period of time. So that's the idea. And if you want to participate in the PicoNet, you have to synchronize. So actually, if you look how this, this works, so if you have over time, here you have your channels. So here you have uh, channel 0, and here you have channel 78, all your whatever channels. Then over time, you stay for certain time frequency, like this, for example. Then you jump to another frequency, then you jump to this frequency, then to this. And this is determined by whatever, uh, the master. So this can be a hopping pattern. So this is then piconet, piconet 1. And if there's another piconet, it's not synchronized with this one, it might hop, whatever, uh, might use, it's not synchronized, might use now completely different sequence of frequencies, but it might collide and use other frequencies. So not synchronized at all. So there's another piconet P2. 
So if they operate in the same space, they also operate in the same frequency. Sometimes they even operate in the same uh, uh, same time, and sometimes same time, same frequency, and then we have a collision. Okay, but typically, if it's not too crowded, collisions are rare. If it's more and more crowded, more and more piconets, you see the number of collision increases. And there's no coordination between two piconets. Okay, so that's the uh, basic idea. So how do you form a piconet? So all the devices, they have to hop together. You will see why later on. So the master has to distribute its device ID, which is actually the MAC address, device ID, 48-bit, plus its clock. And then you calculate a hopping pattern based on the MAC address. This, uh, or this creates a pseudo-random sequence. And the clock determines where you are in the pseudo-random sequence. It repeats after some time, but that's the basic idea. And the master jumps for initial synchronization from time to time uses a specified sequence of frequencies because somehow the slaves, uh, th somehow they have to do an initial synchronization. So if you just jump however you want, uh, the slaves can never find the master. So the slaves must have a chance to find the master and this is why the standard specifies certain frequencies the master will use from time to time to indicate I am Piconet this and that, I'm the master and <coughs> I have the following ID and that's my clock and then the slave following these predefined frequencies can receive this and the slaves as you see can then adjust the clock. Otherwise all the slaves are in standby and if you adjust the clock you are a slave of uh, the master and then there are two there are some more uh, modes of a device. A device can be an active slave or can be parked. And we have parked uh, members with three bit for active members. So that's the basic idea. And why do we actually have the three bits? Well, basically the engineers thought, well, how many simultaneously active devices do you have? You have a laptop, maybe a headset, maybe a keyboard, maybe a mobile phone, maybe a mouse, maybe, hmm, okay, but then it's not that many devices. So eight devices, that's, uh, that's okay. And the master will then assign the slaves the address. So this might be the 010 and the 101, etc., etc., etc. So there's seven addresses here. And one of the addresses is a broadcast address. The master itself does not need uh, an address. Why? Be all communication goes to or from the master. It's never allowed that, in the classical standard, it's not allowed that one slave sends data to another slave. This is not allowed. So this is the reason why you don't need an address for the master because if a slave sends something, it's always for the master. 
So you just need a sender address, the slave address. And if the master sends something, you only need the receiver address. Because the receiver, the slave, knows if you receive something, it's always from the master. So the master itself does not need an explicit address. So you have a broadcast address, and you have the seven addresses for the slaves. That's the basic idea. Okay, I will come back to this parked and whatever uh, members later on when we talk about power saving. There was from the very beginning the idea of creating larger networks. Larger networks by connecting different PicoNets. That's, I have to say, is a function that's basically in the standard. It's a function that almost no device really um, performs or can perform. It's, it's not even implemented because it's complicated and it doesn't work that smoothly. So it's how to form larger networks, so-called scatter nets. So to scatter is to distribute something and you can actually have a cooperation between two PicoNets by forwarding data as shown here. So master sends something to his slave. The slave actually is a member of this pink magenta PicoNet, receives data, then synchronizes to the master of the blue PicoNet and sends the data. So you can forward data actually in this example, by a device jumping back and forth between two PicoNets. It can be a slave. A slave can jump back and forth. But this can be also a master of one PicoNet. So uh, they should be in the uh, transmission range. But so a master can act as a master in one PicoNet and then jump into another PicoNet, but then there, this master becomes a slave. You cannot be a master of two PicoNets. Why? Because the master defines the PicoNet. So, the hopping sequence. So you can never be a master of two PicoNets because the PicoNet is defined by the master. But a master can be a slave in another PicoNet. So, that was the basic idea. This was never a success. There were some devices available there are some implementations, but to be honest, why? What's, what's the, the use case for this to have even larger and larger and larger networks Then, in the end you uh, uh, use a wireless LAN or whatever technology, but to have large Bluetooth networks now. Today, if you look where do you use Bluetooth, it's a keyboard connected to a computer, it's a mouse connected to a computer, it's a headset to a mobile phone. Uh, that's, these are the most common usage scenarios for Bluetooth, so controller. Uh, but for controller, even there, sometimes you need uh, you use a different technology because the delay is too high. But so for, for keyboards, for mouse, yeah, that's, that's quite uh, common. And for headsets, there you have Bluetooth. So Bluetooth is in all the uh, mobile phones. Yeah, for hands-free operation, the car, so the cars, to talk to the mobile phones, so you don't have any cables anymore. So that's the basic idea, the very basic idea of forming a network. We will come back to uh, the service, uh, the data rates and medium access 
later on. Okay, so pickle nets and scatter nets. And scatter nets almost never used. So what? It's a replacement for a cable. Cable between a mobile phone and a headset. Cable between a mobile phone and a computer. So many years ago, for example, you connected your mobile phone to, a co uh, to your computer so that you had a mobile connectivity from your laptop via the mobile phone into uh, the world, into the internet. Well, today, many laptops, tablets, whatever, they have their GSM modem integrated, but still. Okay, so what do we have in Bluetooth? <laughs> Basically, we have well-known protocols. For example, we have the object exchange protocol for, uh, so there's, that's a format for business cards. We have the classical TCP, UDP, IP, point-to-point uh, -point protocols because we have an RFCOM interface that's a serial line interface. And we all know, okay, IP, etc. we can operate over serial lines. There are some uh, nicer protocols supporting TCP IP over layer two with classical modem commands. Uh, so these are classical protocols. We have a telephony stack. We have a direct audio stack. It does not use all the higher layer protocols, but directly uses baseband. Uh, that's for the synchronous connection oriented service. We have management apps. And in orange, these are the new protocols like a service discovery protocol. Well, if you don't use a, wi a wire, you have to discover the other devices. So if you switch on a Bluetooth on your device, the Bluetooth device will search for other visible devices and then will list the visible devices. And then you can perform some, some actions I will explain later. So you, have, uh, you need a service discovery protocol. Uh, you have some link manager. You have to manage uh, the radio channels, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, some new protocols in Bluetooth and uh, mainly protocols to adapt this new wireless technology to the classic protocols we already have. The classical protocols operating over serious line of uh, classical telephone apps, the modem commands, uh, you know, from the classical modems, there are these attention sequences, the AT commands, where you can actually tell things to a radio modem to star, whatever, classically to dial a number, etc., etc. Okay, so how can we offer these services? Well, I will, yeah, some, one minute left. I will explain mainly next time uh, the physical layer, the medium access, the data rates, and then you will understand how this very simple network operates. What you should have understood right now is how you create a network. What is the, the basic idea that you have this PicoNet? Because this is completely different from wireless LANs. In wireless LANs, more or less all the stations are the same. Yes, you have an access point because the access point is a connection to the infrastructure, but they're all the same. So they all have to compete for the medium. There are collisions. There are no collisions in Bluetooth. Within a PicoNet, there might be collisions with other PicoNets, but never within the PicoNet because the master controls with a very simple polling scheme who's allowed to send. 
So we are back in technologies from the 60s, polling with the master and slave. The same with the mainframe computer and the terminals. Okay, more about this the next time. Bluetooth and some other of these uh, personal air networks, some of the networks, and then we will go on to higher layers, mainly layer three, routing issues, etc. Okay, thanks very much for today.